Hi, everybody. This is Alf speaking, and welcome back to the Macro Compass. The article of the week is titled Putin versus Europe, the long war. I think we need to reflect on last week's uh, Putin speech, which was pretty important, where he clearly outlined his strategy to bring Europe to its knees. Now, for decades, Europe's business model has been structured around cheap energy, cheap input costs. Those are used to produce good quality manufactured goods, and they're, they're exported around the world. And Germany is a prime example of such a business model, although other countries around the world, like Korea, could be used to as a poster child for this business model. Also, due to globalization, aging demographics, technological advances, interest rates were headed lower and lower over time. And this led to another important development, which was a massive buildup in public and private sector leverage and the hyper-financialization of Western economies, including Europe. Putin's strategy is clear. He wants to take away the cheap energy inputs from the equation, and he expects a domino of negative consequences that will unfold. Economic output will materially suffer, and at the same time, energy-driven inflation will pick up. That means that both the real economy and financial markets will get squeezed hard, because from the real economy front, consumers and corporates will suffer from negative real wage growth, weaker profitability, etc., and the highly leveraged imaginary wealth economy, as he calls it, will get hit because the ECB will be forced to tighten financial conditions as inflation goes up. The main question I want to answer in this article is, will the strategy work? And most importantly, how will Europe respond to this strategy? Now, let's talk about the strategy first. And I want to quote what Putin said last week. The economy of imaginary wealth is being inevitably, inevitably replaced by the economy of real and hard assets. Now, this single sentence summarizes Putin's entire strategy, and it consists of three main points. So let's walk through them. Number one, cheap energy, competitive production, strong exports. Once you can get your hands around cheap input costs, you can manufacture good quality stuff and you can export it around the world, you're looking like a pretty good economy. And that's what Germany did in the 2000s. Now, the key question is how important is the cheap energy component? Or in other words, how big is Russia's economic leverage? Were they, drastically, were they to drastically change this parameter in the equation, the cheap energy parameter. Zoltan Posar calculates that roughly 2 trillion euros of Germany manufacturing output are produced relying on only 27 billion equivalent of Russian energy inputs. Now, that's quite the leverage, right? Only 27 billion equivalent of Russian energy inputs that are underlying, underpinning almost 2 trillion of German manufacturing output. Now, what happens when a highly leveraged environment gets deprived of easy and ample access to leverage, in this case, Russian energy? The system generally becomes very unstable. And because of the embedded leverage, the negative reactions are not linear, but they are rather convex. They are nonlinear. And the chart of the momentum in the German current account balance speaks pretty loud. Germany was able to accumulate large current account surpluses in the 2000s, and the latest sprints are pointing downwards. Now, this strategy obviously damages Russia too, because energy sales to Europe represent a large portion of Russian income. And also, once you effectively cut ties with your biggest trading partner, there will be negative effects for your domestic economy. Putin is planning to go after another important source of leverage too, and try to play with time from his side. So... 
the second large source of leverage, together with the embedded leverage of German economy and other economies towards Russian gas, is the economy of imaginary wealth, as Putin calls it. And he refers to the enormous wealth generated through the combination of credit creation and low interest rates in Europe over the last 20 years. Let's make an example. If you extend mortgages, for instance, at lower and lower borrowing rates, even if salaries are unchanged, people will be able to afford more expensive houses. They will feel wealthier. Think about it this way. If you're planning to spend 2,000 euro per month on a mortgage installment, at 4% mortgage rates, you can only buy a house worth 350,000 euro. But if you borrow at 1% mortgage, suddenly afford a 500,000 euro worth home and not a 350,000 worth home anymore. We're talking about a, almost a 40% appreciation. You can understand how you can quickly become wealthier, even though your salary or your ability to generate long-term cash flows hasn't really gone up. Now, credit creation at very low borrowing rates uh, is a very common um, structure across Western economies, but there is this, this common misconception that only certain European countries are making use of this excessive use of debt and lower, lower interest rates. That's actually misleading because if you sum private and public debt, all major European jurisdictions easily exceed 200% of GDP and leading the pack on total economy debt as percentage of GDP, you won't find Italy, you'll actually find France or the Netherlands because private sector debt in these economies is very large. Now, this doesn't even account for contingent liabilities where governments are guaranteeing potential losses or there are outright liabilities of public corporations that aren't considered in the calculation of official debt. And Germany leads the pack there with over 100% of GDP in contingent liabilities, which are not accounted in the debt to GDP calculations. Now, what I want to say is that overall in Europe, there is quite some leverage and the aggressive credit creation coupled with lower borrowing costs has generated a large amount of financial asset gains, what Putin refers to as imaginary wealth. So how does he want to go after this additional source of leverage? Well, that's pretty easy to understand. If he imposes higher energy costs, he will generate high energy-driven inflation. And if um, sustained for longer, this will force the ECB to raise borrowing costs and apply tighter financial conditions. And again, what happens in a highly leveraged environment when the cost or the availability of the leverage, in this case, borrowing rates, drastically changes? And I guess you get it. The reactions are nonlinear and they are convex. Now, of course, the third point is that you can't expect European policymakers to sit back and do nothing. But what will they do? Now, to answer this question, you need to think of this saga like an emerging market external shock. In general, emerging market business models often depend on certain external inputs to function. A regular flow of dollars, a supply of certain goods. But once this input chain is subject to a sharp exogenous shock, the business model can easily break and policymakers are then faced with challenging short-term decision and often there are only suboptimal outcomes. Also, this type of pressure coming from external exogenous shocks always finds its way towards a release valve for this pressure. Now, let's see where Europe stands. What are the short-term options? The first is to tighten, tighten things up and go through some pain. So do not use the government balance sheet to rescue the private sector. Don't print new euros via deficits and convincingly increase real interest rates. Go through a strong and sustained ECB hiking cycle to protect your currency. 
the release bulb in an over-levered economy is that if you do that, economic growth suffers, highly leveraged sector like real estate market, for instance, suffer aggressively and peripheral debt gets also targeted by investors. And you can see that European high yield corporate borrowing rates are already double what they were between 2014 and 2021. This is only an appetizer of what could happen if Europe would decide to go for this strategy, which would undoubtedly help uh, relieve some pressure, but the release valve will be very important. The second strategy, which is, I think, what Europe is trying to apply is to try and shield the private sector, offset the losses there by using the government balance sheet and somehow try to retain credibility on the inflation fighting front. Now, basically, you're printing euros via deficit using the government balance sheet, and you're trying to use the central bank to retain some credibility on the inflation fighting front. Normally, the release valve there is the currency. In an emerging market like external shock like this one, unfortunately, there are no optimal short-term response strategies. And the latest UK and European policymakers announcement and today's ECB meeting, this is uh, Thursday, the 8th of September, when we are recording, clearly signal that politicians are going for the second option. Now, today's ECB meeting, the most important announcement there was not the 75 basis point hike, which was relevant. But the most important announcement was that, was that Lagarde and ECB members winked at European excess liquidity and the banking sector. Now, how did they do that? Let's walk back to 2020, 2021, when European banks borrowed more than 2 trillion euro from the ECB, as so-called TLTRO operations. The borrowing conditions were super favorable. Interest rates were as low as minus 1% between June 2020 and June 2022, and after that, so basically from now onwards, the borrowing cost will be equivalent to the average ECP deposit rate through the lifetime of the TLTRO operation. So that's the average between minus 50 basis point, which was the ECB rate between June 20 and June 2022, and what the new prevailing ECB deposit rate will be from now onwards. There are roughly two years to go before these TLTRO loans mature. And in principle, banks could opt to repay early these loans, but and this will reduce the ECB balance sheet. But today, the ECB gave banks a nice incentive not to repay these loans and to keep euro excess liquidity pretty high. And why is that? Because the funding costs for these TLTROs will remain pretty low. They were locked in at minus 1% for the first two years between June 20 and June 2022. Going forward, there will be equivalent to the average ECB deposit rate between now and the maturity of the TLTRO loan. So that means that if I make the average cost through the lifetime, that will be 25 to 50 basis point, I guess, when it comes to this borrowing cost for these TLTRO loans. But when it comes on the asset side, the investment side, banks will be making quite some good money, quite some good carry on this. Because if they just merely park the excess reserves they borrow back at the domestic central bank, According to the same market pricing, they will be making on average more than 100 basis points. So they're making more than 100 on the asset side. They'll pay 25 to 50 on the, on the liability side, on the funding side. With such an incentive scheme, it's very likely that European banks will not be repaying these loans. Also, there was no discussion whatsoever of quantitative tightening, which means the ECB for now is choosing deliberately not to shrink their balance sheet. And euro excess liquidity, which is sitting at almost 5 trillion euros, will not be coming down anytime soon. And this is very relevant as a policymaker response, because you need to think of that in the context of European governments 
announcing guarantees and help to the private sector during the energy crisis this winter. In other words, the public sector will be absorbing losses through its balance sheet, which means there will be more euro printing, not bank reserves. I talk about, I'm talking about deficits, new spendable euros being created for the private sector. What does it mean for European assets? While more real economy euros, as they call them, so uh, deficits, and on top of it, persistently high financial economy euro balances, those are bank reserves, stay in the system, this combination can be positive for the private sector through less defaults and smaller decline in earnings. So indeed, policymakers will be shielding the private sector to a certain extent, but the euro is poised to act as a long-term release valve. The European policymakers' response complicates Putin's agenda because it buys Europe some time to find medium-term solutions to the energy crisis. And the Russian economy will be facing challenging economic conditions, but in any case, Europe, I think, has suffered a structural hit here because long-term investors will be doubting the future viability of the good old German-European business model, and the euro will be serving as a pressure release valve for some time because new euros are created by a printing deficits and persistently high financial economy euro balances, bank reserves, excess liquidity will be kept in the system. I therefore remain tactically short euro against the dollar and also structurally cautious on European assets overall. Now, this was all for today, guys. Thanks for listening. As always, uh, you are so kind with me and I would really appreciate if you share this article in your um, social media or in your, uh, with your friends and family and colleagues so we can spread the word about the Macro Compass because it will really make my day enlarge the community, which is almost 91,000 people right now. So thank you all for the support. And if you're interested in partnering up with me, uh, sponsoring me, um, inviting me at conferences, uh, having me for a media appearance, just reach out at themacrocompass at gmail.com. I will talk to you guys next week.